Welcome to the Nonprofit Tech Podcast presented by FusionSpan. FusionSpan helping associations thoughtfully engage their customers through technology. My name is Justin Berniski, and today I'll be discussing data privacy with Todd M. Tolbert, the Chief Administrative Officer at the Internet Society. Hello, Todd. Hey, Justin. How are you today? I am doing great. For folks who, who wouldn't be familiar with the Internet Society, can you give us a little bit of background on what your main mission is, what your membership is like, and you know, how you relate to the timely subject of data privacy? Uh, yeah, I can do all of that. First, let me thank uh, FusionSpan for having me on to talk about this. I think, as we all know, that between GDPR and just things we're reading in the newspapers every day, that this is a pretty timely topic. So thanks for having me aboard on this. Um, the Internet Society's mission is pretty simple in my mind. It's that we want an open, globally connected, trusted, and secure Internet for everyone. And some of our folks would say everywhere uh, on the globe. And to that end, we believe the biggest threats to the trust is the trusted and secure part or to the trusted and secure part is the actual routing infrastructure and what is turning out to be some of the most insecure pieces on the internet today, which is IoT devices, which again, something else we hear about in, in the newspapers every day. We also wanna help connect the next billions of people on the planet. We have worked with local communities around the globe alongside our partners and members and chapters to create a program called Community Networks, where we can show people how to connect their villages, their towns, while not really competing with a local ISP. And finally, we believe there is a methodology for engaging all of the stakeholders in governance of the internet by all bodies, government, governments, entities, anyone that seeks to erect laws and boundaries on the internet. And we find uh, through these four campaigns, as we like to think of them, that these four areas of focus for us, that we can have the greatest impact. To your question about our membership, uh, our members are from all walks of life and from all of the countries in the world, pretty much. We are the organizational home and a very deep partner of the Internet Engineering Task Force, or IETF. And those are the people who have over the many several years of the internet have, have developed the protocols and, and how the internet works uh, from sometimes some people may say from the plumbing level. We do vast amounts of local and regional work through our 130 plus or so uh, chapters and we have over 150 companies, nonprofits and NGOs in what we call organization members. And so together this community works to have an impact on the technology policy and development of the internet. And as you have asked about how this helps us to be an advocate for many things, including data privacy, uh, we do so through a large number of subject matter experts and specialized programs, including two that your listeners might be interested in in this, this uh, data privacy topic is ethical data handling and our online trust alliance initiative. So I, I think we have you know, a, a pretty good global view of, of this topic and several others. And, you know, all of that can be found. You can find a lot of information on what we're interested in on our website, which you know, internetsociety.org. There's so many things like the IoT, the Internet of Things you mentioned. I think a lot of our listeners would be fascinated to hear about. Um, obviously, some of the infrastructure questions, you know, there's been a lot of net neutrality is a big thing out there. But we're going to try and focus on data privacy because that's definitely a big issue. For listeners, how would you define the difference between data privacy and data protection? They're obviously connected, but does one necessarily guarantee the other? How does that, how does that fit together? 
Well, it's a great question to answer it very quickly. Um, no, they're not the same. One does not guarantee the other. Um, data, data protection does not guarantee that, that you are doing the right things in data privacy. So I think it's a good question to try to pull these things apart. So for me, and a lot of the work we do here at the Internet Society, data privacy has to start with a mentality. In most cases, that mentality starts around a question. And the question would be, why do you need personal data of a constituent or a member or a customer? I mean, let's face it, we're all human, and we all want varying degrees of privacy and anonymity, especially when we're using the Internet. So when we give our data to someone, we really should understand why they need it. If I gave my email address to you, Justin, as I did, it's because I want you to be able to contact me to do this interview, uh, to talk about our mutual interest in associations or whatever topic we might want to by email or in person. But I didn't give it to you to give to someone else for a reason that I've never heard of. So why do you need it? You need it to do what you agreed that you and I would do together. You want to contact me, you want to nurture a relationship, you want to give me logistics for this interview, and I'm, and I'm fine with all of that as long as you and I agree that I've given my information to you for a particular reason. Your job in this data privacy question is to keep it private to you. So every time you pull up my record through whatever mechanism, tool, or on your phone that you might have it, that you remember that I gave it to you for a reason and you use it for only that. That's data privacy. That's the underlying foundation of ethical data handling. And at the risk of, you know, having an argument with other people about GDPR, I think it's the basis of GDPR as well. It's about understanding that I gave my data to you for something and that you should keep it private. Data protection, in my mind, is the mechanisms you use to keep the data you are storing safe and to maintain that privacy. It's, it's the tools you use to make sure that the bargain we've made is kept. It's easy to go to the example of credit cards. If I give my credit card to a vendor to purchase you know, my watch, I'd like them to process that transaction. I'd like to make sure that they get paid for the watch and that there is a pivotal point of the question of why do they need to keep this information? If they ask me if they can hold on to it for say the next time I, I buy something from them, and I agree, then I expect that they will put the appropriate mechanisms in place to make sure that some rogue actor doesn't take my credit card information and buy a trip to New Zealand, let's say. So PCI compliance, cybersecurity, firewalls, all of those things are mechanisms of protecting data in a way that attempts to make sure that our privacy is, is kept and maintained. And it's a hard job. I, I think anybody listening now to us would you know, agree that it's, it's not an easy thing. At ISOC or the Internet Society, we advocate not only for policies and processes that can help data protection, but technologies as well. We support the Encrypt Everywhere movement. And that's, uh, if you're not familiar with that, it's basically this idea of turning on HTTPS and using TLS and things like that on your websites for every page, not just the ones where you ask for data. Try doing it sometime. You know, you'd be surprised at what you learn about how easy it is in the technology to set up a way to encrypt all the time. Turn it on and see that. You know, we also advocate advocate for other types of technologies, such as IPv6 and DNSSEC, which are, you know, they're 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 definitely down on the lower part of the stack. But what they are are mechanisms by which you, as a user, and your browser can validate that these are where I really intended to go. All of these technologies can help make the internet more secure and thus protect the data 
that we're all trying to, you know, keep private and, and close to our vest. You know, to kind of put it together, they're not the same thing, but they have to work together. That makes sense. And hearing you mention talking about me and you giving me my your email and the importance of me sort of valuing that kind of opens up the idea of not just, this isn't just responsibility of organizations. I think individuals also have a little bit of a responsibility here with data. So what are some of the common misconceptions around data privacy that you see, you know, with the idea that maybe it's people think of it sort of in one light, but really it's a much broader conversation. Yeah, I think the first one, um, if I think about several of these, the first one is what we just talked about. There is this misconception that one is the other. Data privacy and data protection are the same thing. And so I think we've discussed that and hopefully that enlightens someone. The second one in my mind is the privacy, is that privacy is about understanding the bargain that somebody might make for their data. My favorite example for my family, for my aging parents and all that, is the use of a free, I won't name them, but a free, very well-known mail product that many of us use. It's fantastic technology. It has as many or more functionality aspects, you know, high cost, uh, high maintenance commercial systems have, and it's free. It's free to us. But why is it free? Not just because that company wants to do a public service to the world by letting everybody have, you know, this great tool, this email. It's because they get access to your data. You've made a bargain with them. You've said, you give me this great functionality uh, for free. And what I'll do is I'll tell you some stuff about me. And oh, by the way, I'll put all my email in there. I'll, you'll be able to almost see every transaction I buy because we get receipts and shipping. So we've made a bargain there that we get utility out of their software and they get utility out of the data that they will see through that. Now, I think, you know, we as a society, not the internet society, but as a society in general need to, to keep that in mind. There is a bargain that we're, we're making there and that bargain is going to lead to advertisements. That's how these companies get paid. And what they're doing is using your data to understand a profile of you and to understand your likes and dislikes. And for that, they will show you advertisements and the advertising company will pay for that. And so that's how they, they make, uh, make their money, how they pay for their innovation and how they produce this thing over and over and maintain it. So I, I think we have to understand this this bargain and we talk a lot about that at ISOC about the bargain that someone makes for giving their data up. I think where privacy comes into that is the fact that at some point we all need to understand exactly what they're using that data for and that we trust them and that in some cases maybe governments need to stand in, step in and say force them to, to uh, make sure that they keep those things private. I think thirdly also there's a misconception that data privacy isn't something that everybody should do and you just alluded to that in the fact that it's not just about the IT department of your company or your nonprofit is responsible for making sure that all the data is secure and that you don't have a responsibility in that we all need to get on board with this. In our online trust alliance initiative we publish an honor roll every year that in essence reviews and highlights and audits uh, companies that are doing uh, data privacy well. We, we do a whole bunch of them and then we, we publish this on a roll of who's doing it the best. And through those years of doing those audits, we've compiled a large amount of best practices of privacy. We then publish um, what we call our Cyber Incident and Breach Response Guide. And in that document, one of the first things we state 
is that there's no perfect security. All organizations need to recognize they will encounter an incident and they will be judged on how they respond. And how they respond is the important part here. Because now you've taken it away, not just with IT and what they need to do in terms of security, it's, it's the, the public image of your nonprofit. Um, and the only way that an organization doesn't have to worry about this is that if you collect no data, and I think you and I could agree that we would be hard pressed to come up with a couple of companies that don't collect some sort of personal data uh, about people and about the, the, you know, especially since we're talking about uh, nonprofits and associations and membership organizations, it's the lifeblood of what, of what these organizations do. It is the convening factor of bringing these folks together and understanding more about them. So we have to understand as employees, as executives, as leaders, as you know, even the very bottom person that uh, we need to, to make sure that we're keeping this data private and, and understand that, and, you know, I kind of think of it almost as the golden rule of data privacy. How would you want your data to be handled? If you can just answer that question for yourself and treat everybody's data that you come across the same way, I think you know, the world would be a better place. We're not there yet. There's a bunch of good work still to be done. Yeah, I think, I mean, you touched on the idea that got a free service, hearings with Facebook on the Hill, there was some conversation about a paid model for privacy, which I think is kind of an interesting idea that maybe instead of getting everything for free, you start to pay and in return, you get back some of that information, which I think is a big, you know, it's something for these, the free model to think about. You have a good point there. There's many, you know, one of the beauties of being uh, a staff member at the Internet Society and being in this community is I get the opportunity, we all get the opportunity to meet some of those people who were there at the beginning. The uh, Dr. Serfs of the world, the Bob Cons of the world, the Bob Hindens of the world. And, and you talk to them and say, you know, could you see this coming? Could you see this when you were getting going? Could you see this thing taking off in such a way? And, and they would even tell you, and I won't quote any of them, but I, I would say, you know, you get the feeling from them that, that they were building something so cool for the ability for people to communicate and collaborate over long distances, that it was about being transparent and open and seeing these things and not building in the security because they kind of felt like it would just, people would just do that. It would be that be nice to each other type thing on the internet. And, and we've gotten to that point where we've gotten so far down the path of, you know, if you could rebuild that and rethink about it, could something like micropayments be used as the currency of the internet versus your data being the frequent? I think it's, it behooves all of us to really think about, you know, about the bargain that we're making. I was just going to throw in there, I think what you've brought up, micropayments, we now have crypto assets that are out there that could you see a reimagining of the internet almost with the, now we have this ability for micropayments we have this concern around data privacy. If we were to go back 30 years, maybe the, the technology wasn't there to be able to support it, where now it is suddenly is. Uh, it's a great question. And, you know, I won't, I won't even play a futurist on, on your podcast here. But uh, I know that I was sitting just last week in the Netherlands with, um, with our chief internet technology officer, Olaf Kolkman, and we were talking exactly about this. We were talking about, wow, what, what would the internet be like if you could reimagine and re-envision these things and where are we going to go? Because 
to your point about the, the Senate hearings here in the United States up on the Hill, where they were asking about going to a, a paid model and all that. Wow. I mean, you would, uh, at least from a Facebook, I guess, perspective, or pick somebody like that, do you totally destroy basically a several billion dollar company on your way to rebuild it as something else? I, I don't know the answer, and I wouldn't venture a guess on that. I think that it's a great question, and I think it's the beauty of working in the internet space is that it's kind of, I grew up in Texas, so it's kind of like the Texas weather. You don't like what it is right now. Wait five minutes, it'll change. The internet is constantly evolving and the next thing will be there. And the the GDPR is, is while it's not the very first privacy regulation out there, it's the one that starts to touch everything. What are you seeing for non, in the nonprofit realm? What are some of the biggest data privacy issues in the next five years? And I know that's that's challenge with technology constantly changing. It's challenging to predict. Um, but what, where are you guys? Where are you kind of looking towards? To be honest, I'm more thinking in the next five months um, as it pertains to this data privacy, five to twelve months, because it's for me, it's hard to look at after that. I think we need to keep considering this GDPR thing and what it has touched off. It now is in everything. Many people listening to this will know they've been working on their GDPR stuff. Companies, places, products, services, all those things that we've used um, on the, our whole internet lives, the whole time we've been using the internet are being questioned. Even the who is utility to see who actually owns a domain on the internet has to comply. And there's been news recently about how uh, those organizations involved in that are asking for extensions and trying to figure out how to do this. And the reason that is, is because that tool was meant to be transparent. It was meant to provide transparency so that you, you know who owns a domain. So if you're getting spam from them or something like that, um, GDPR has changed all those rules. And I venture to say that it won't be the only rule or only set of regulations we see coming up soon. Um, we're all working towards regulations that a government body that not all of us live in do business in or even consider a target for business in the future and we're trying to meet their regulation. I, I assume that many of your listeners are 501c3s in the United States or 501c6s, which is membership or trade associations, and we're all trying to meet a regulation for the European economic area that we don't pay taxes to, you know, in, in general. But since all of us want to be global, we want to expand our reach, we we have to pay attention to this kind of stuff and, and make sure that we're compliant because we most likely have EU citizens in our database. Think about what happens when the next governing body decides to want to do that. And I don't have any information, so I'm not giving anything away here, but what happens if the African Union follows suit and issues a set of regulations that differ from GDPR or that the United States issues laws that are in direct conflict with the GDPR? What do we do then? as an organization, a trade organization, or a nonprofit, or a membership? Do we start keeping separate databases based on where someone else lives? Do we have different business rules in our systems for those that live in different countries? Uh, I know for our organization, if we had to manage our data based on the country a person lives in, we're talking about 100 plus different business rules just for data privacy alone without even getting to the part about what language they speak in and currencies and all of that. And to be honest, I don't know if the tools can even keep up with that. And I think that's the, the interesting thing about 
what we're seeing in GDPR is that more organizations are looking to do like what we're doing at ISOC in that it's easier, quote unquote, it's easier just to say we're going to treat everybody the same instead of just trying to pull out our EU citizens and do that for them. Because again, it gives us a, a level of data privacy that at least for our database and our uh, constituents, we haven't had before. So for me, what's what we need to do is take a step back and look at the data in another way, in, in my opinion. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry to keep belaboring the point, but it, it starts with why do we need the data? Transactions, yes. Communications, yes. Customer services, absolutely. But what about those, you know, 500 people in your database that you haven't heard from in seven years? That their email addresses stopped working and you got hard bounces, so you stopped sending email to them. They moved from their address or they moved to a different company, but you keep maintaining that data thinking someday it's going to be useful. And the question I have is, for what? And if we start to ask ourselves those questions about this data, we start to meet data privacy regulation kind of in the middle of saying, well, I really don't need that data anymore. There's no reason for me to know that Justin was at some other company before this one seven years ago when he gave 20 bucks on a donation drive at one point. Uh, we thanked him, hopefully. <laughs> we, we took care of that transaction. We did all that. So I, I kind of like to look at it as we have to change our mentality about what we need the data for. Use it for that, obviously use it for that. Engage with our memberships in such a way that they wanna keep their data available and updated with us. And to be honest, if we're delivering that value and they want to do it and they go through all of the steps of checking all the boxes and saying, I am happy for you to have this, then what's left for us is to protect it and realize that the bargain that they've made is to get something back. And so, I, I think once we get over the, the shock, and why I say five months to, to 12 months, is once we get over the shock of, okay, here comes this May 25th or 28th day, it's the processes that we continue to do after that that are going to take some time for us all to get comfortable with, especially here in the United States. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense that you'd want to just raise the bar for everyone as opposed to trying to have different business rules. Yeah, and that's what I'd hope would if we is nonprofits utilize the GDPR for nothing else is to say that we can raise the bar on our data privacy actions and, and what we do with this data and make the internet and maybe the world a little safer uh, in its use of the internet. Yeah, and I, th I mean, I think to some extent you describe why do we keep this data? And it's almost like there's an opportunity for a new TV show called Data Hoarders, because I think <laughs> I look at my own desktop and I tend to save all my downloads and I save all these files and I know I have backups of my college laptop somewhere on some hard disk and why? I don't know. Having this conversation makes me realize that in my own personal life, I should probably be doing a better job with my own data. Uh, and then as an organization, it just makes sense to clean, your, to clean up, to purge things you don't need and to let it go which I think is a you know great advice for nonprofits looking for ways to improve their data privacy. Are there any other mistakes or common um, issues you see nonprofits associations making that could be, uh, they could address? Well, I, I see two primary mistakes. And, and I think uh, just to be clear, while I think that this, you know, my experience in the last eight, nine, almost 10 years has been in nonprofit organizations and, and associations, I think companies do this too, because I've worked in that world before I came over to this side. So the two primary mistakes I see is, first is the use of opt-ins and opt-outs. 
And this is a very U.S. biased thing. um, We've all seen and done this. You set up a form, you ask a bunch of questions, and then to be compliant, quote unquote compliant, we put a pre-check box that states something like the person is opting in for some email list or newsletter or giving consent to some policy that they probably didn't read or won't read. We think we're doing this to make it easy for the person to get information from us because they won't take the time to read the fine print. And we think, well, if they got this far, then they'll want more information, right? So we're, we're, we're trying to be nice. We're trying to make it easy. We're trying to make the engagement time frictionless, but sticky, as, as I like to think of it. We got to stop that. It's not only for GDPR, because it says that we need to stop it, but in general for the privacy and the consent aspect of having my data. So my example of this is if I go online on a form to fill out a petition because I'm passionate about making sure that food trucks are allowed at every brewery in Loudoun County, I don't want someone to think that I then want to get notifications of this specific food truck and its whereabouts all over Northern Virginia because that food truck happened to be the, the people who organized the petition. Um, We need to be more explicit about the bargain that people are making with us. I've maintained over the years that associations and nonprofits have the best factual content and things to say about their particular focus areas, period, end of conversation. These people in, in lots of ways are the authorities. It's important work by dedicated people and the bargain is a good one in a lot of cases. You need some information, you know, you need your certification, you need this education, you need the latest thinking. Uh, and I think that nonprofits, you know, need to be able to stand up and rely on the integrity of the work that they do. And it's valuable. It's, it's valuable. And whether you charge for this content or you give it away, it's still there's a value there. And maybe the value and the, the bargain is you're taking some, some data. But it's okay to, to do it correctly. It's okay to make it have a little bit of friction, make sure that they understand what they're doing, let them opt in and receive that information, not always rely on an opt out. Oh, you know, I'm gonna keep spamming you and sending this to you because it looks good on my statistics and my metrics that, you know, I have uh, 50,000 people on this role and I get 15% open rates and I get 10% click rates and, you know, I've got a metric somewhere in my organization that says that. We do that because of those reasons, not because it's the right thing to do with people's data and it, not because it's the right thing to do to keep them engaged. If our content is good, then they should want to engage and they'd want to come back. I think the second thing is not being prepared to protect the data once you've asked the question and have the answer that you can keep it. And that kind of goes back to our conversation about you know, data protection, the difference between privacy and protection. I mentioned our cyber incident and breach response guide and in there we talk about a bunch of steps all the steps in my mind that an organization should take in being ready from risk assessment to cyber insurance to incident response um, we have to be ready the old adage in the security world is it's not about if you have an, a, an incident it's when they're, they're going to come knocking on the door and they're going to get in and get to something and it may be as benign as you know, one of your staffers has a, a membership role on a, on a uh, USB key and leaves it in a computer somewhere that they shouldn't have, or as major as, you know, what we've seen with organizations in the newspaper right now. But it's going to happen. And knowing what to do to minimize those opportunities and how to react when it happens uh, is really the ballgame. 
you know, the public backlash to the companies we've been talking about are examples of instances where the reaction is the big, so what, as I call it, it's going to happen. Gosh, we wish it won't, but we need to all be ready. And I think that, you know, between being okay, that we're making a bargain, we're giving our work, we're spending money and time to create this knowledge and to give folks and for them to give us data back and for us to provide it, that's, that's important. And being ready should something like this happen so that we can show that we're responsible organizations. I think that's really important as well. We all have health insurance. We all try and take care of our bodies to make sure we don't get sick. But when we get sick, having that insurance there is always key. Final question for you is, what steps could nonprofits and associations take this week? They haven't really been thinking about this. Uh, they haven't thought about data privacy in any context, which hopefully is not the case. But if, you know, for some of the smaller nonprofits, it can be a struggle. You got a lot of balls up in the air. You're trying to figure things out. So what, it, what would be some first steps if someone wants to start to get serious with their organization about data privacy? Well, I would first say if you're listening to this and, and you fall into the category that Justin just uh, described there and you have any European citizens data in your databases, please check a calendar because um, May 25th is coming very quickly and you need to do something. So please do get started. Um, if you don't really already have any of these things that we talked about place a response plan or a data privacy policy or even an updated GDPR compliant privacy policy or statement, then I'm sorry, but you, you need tools and you need help. You need some, somebody who can bring to bear the tools that you need. I would say the ASAE community has been great in sharing tools and templates. And I'd suggest if you're a member of that organization, go there to start to get some help. They've been really pushing the idea of we're all in this together and, and here's a, a great way to get you some of the things that you might need. There's also the guide that I've been referring to, which is done by our online trust alliance. It's a great tool. It can be found on the OTA Alliance website, which I'll just go ahead and give the, the URL here. It's OTA Alliance, O-T-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E.org slash incident. I've also found great information by joining an organization that I knew nothing about prior to GDPR. It's called the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And for what I consider to be a pretty small uh, membership joining fee for nonprofits, um, there's a huge wealth of knowledge and tools in there, templates and things like that. But I, I think I'd also state pretty emphatically that if you are looking to do GDPR compliance work at this late date, you should really start with getting your legal counsel involved, even before looking to a GDPR consultant. Because in the end, you need to do what's right for your membership, but you also need to protect your organization. So uh, on both sides of that coin, you, you're going to need some help. Once you have those tools, I really do think organizations need to start with the questions that I asked a little bit earlier, which is why do you need the data? If you look at it mostly from a risk perspective and ask yourself, why do you need to hold people's personal information? And if you can answer that question, that you really do need it, then you need to ask yourself if you can commit to treating it like you would want your own data to be treated. And that commitment has to be from the top down, from your board of directors or trustees all the way down to the very newest staffer that you just hired, that you all have to be in this together because I guarantee you should a breach happen and you lose the data of your membership in such a way, you will all be in it together in seeing your name splattered across a newspaper. 
And then I think to our conversation a while ago about you talking about your desktop and your own stuff, we need to be okay with letting things go, deleting data. There are plenty of studies around that state that, you know, email that is put in some folder just in case uh, never gets looked at again. And we as businesses have used email as the ultimate in filing electronic filing cabinets. So we have personal data all over the place in mailboxes all over, you know, many different platforms and go back to our conversation earlier. Now you may have a system that is donated to your nonprofit organization that you are using for your email and you've got years and years and years of email. They have access to that data as well. So that's where things such as your data processing amendments and data processor amendments come in and making sure that the tools you use and the companies you use are also doing the right things by GDPR. But it's a long time ago when I first started in, in the IT world and I was getting introduced to PCI compliance, there was a consultant that said, you know, the best PCI compliance is basically don't have it and you don't have to worry about it. You don't keep it. You don't have to worry about protecting it. If you don't have $100 million, you don't have to worry about putting it in the, in the bank is kind of the way I look at it. So I think you, you, you need to get this tool set in front of you. I think any of the good ones, and I've mentioned a few of them, and there's a ton more out there, any of the good ones will have you start with some of those questions and some of that risk assessment of your, of your organization and the data you have of, do I really need to be having these things? And I would, I would top all that off with just saying, you need to be able to continue to have, if you don't already have, make sure you get one, is, a, is an open and transparent relationship with your membership. We want this data for this reason. And for that, we are going to, to deliver on something. And we're only going to use it for that. And if we need to use it for something else, we're going to come back and ask you. We're going to continue that conversation so that we both know what the bargain is that, that we've made that. So, you know, I, I don't know. That's where, that's where we've been working from both uh, from a programmatic standpoint and trying to advocate for these things, but also in our own business and, and how we can do this better. So I hope that helps those that are looking to get started in this data privacy world, which is one that's not going away anytime soon. Well, Todd, thank you very much for your time today. Is there anywhere on the internet where you're giving away your information for free? Well, that's the beauty of the internet society. So while we do have uh, a, have a, a great big, uh, community of, of members, um, all of our content is free. So everything that I just talked about, at least that comes from the Internet Society or the Online Trust Alliance, is all available through the internetsociety.org website or the Online Trust Alliance uh, website. You can see a whole bunch of in, uh, information, tweets that we do at Internet Society on Twitter, Facebook, where you know, we're talking about all of these things and much, much more all over the Internet. Welcome any of those who are looking for this type of, of information to come come to our website. It's a good place to start. Uh, OTA is a good place to start. I wish you all luck and all that work. All right. Well, yeah, and I, you can find me at Jay Bernisky. I am giving away my content for tw free on Twitter as well. So, um, well, Todd, thank you so much for your time today. And I think our listeners are going to find this very useful and very helpful. I hope so. Thanks, Justin, for the time. Appreciate it. 